Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder and medical malpractice that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It is often said that the best place to hide is in plain sight. When an answer is right before you, it can be easy to miss, overlooked, ignored. This human tendency to overlook the obvious is exactly what Dr. Michael Swango counted on when he decided to go into medicine. Behind his outward interest in the field was an obsession with morbidity and gore. This fascination grew as he rose through the hospital ranks. Whenever someone died, he was nearby, but never noticed. After all, Hospitals see their fair share of death even without foul play, providing an ideal hunting ground for a secret serial killer. And Dr. Swango had the perfect cover. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to assist Alastair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. Michael Swango, who seemed to hate paperwork as much as he loved poison. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dr. Michael Swango, a nihilistic physician with a penchant for poisonings. Michael targeted both helpless patients and unsuspecting colleagues in his quest for mayhem. Though he only confessed to a handful of murders, the cold-hearted caregiver is suspected of killing more than 60 people between 1981 and 1997. Today, we'll discuss Michael's promising youth, his cavalier medical school behavior, and how, despite his obsession with calamity, he continued to practice medicine with his reputation essentially unscathed. Next time, we'll chronicle the great lengths Michael took to find new victims and the international manhunt that brought his venomous spree to an end. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 69-year-old Rena Cooper shifted uncomfortably as she awaited pain medication. It was around 9 p.m. on February 7, 1984, a while since the hospital provided her last dose. Fortunately, her request was swiftly answered and she soon heard footsteps approach her bed. Turned on her side, she couldn't see the physician's face clearly, save for a fleeting glance of his golden blonde hair. Rena listened as the unfamiliar doctor adjusted her IV line. Any second now, her discomfort would be relieved and she'd finally be able to sleep. But respite didn't come. In the moments that followed, Rena Cooper suddenly felt an indescribable evil course through her veins. 
her muscles seized. In the blink of an eye, much of her body was paralyzed. Panicked, Rena opened her mouth to scream, but she no longer had a voice. Air rushed from her lungs as the drug tightened its grasp. Trapped in her own body, Rena was about to suffocate. But not without a fight. She focused what little strength remained and gripped her right hand onto the bed rail. With a final, desperate cry for help, she shook it as hard as she could, hoping to attract someone's attention. Miraculously, it worked. Rena's roommate shouted for a nurse, and within moments, a field of doctors rushed to her aid. By the skin of her teeth, she was saved. Though she wouldn't realize it until much later, Rena Cooper had apparently just survived a murder attempt by Dr. Michael Swango, one of the most cold-blooded serial killers in American history. From the start, Michael Swango was the American dream gone sour. Born in 1954, he grew up as the middle child of three boys in an all-American household in Quincy, Illinois. His father, Virgil, was a proud Vietnam veteran, and his mother, Muriel, worked tirelessly to keep their home in perfect order. Charming, handsome, bright, and even blonde, Michael seemed to have it all. But like most things that seem too good to be true, their picturesque household was merely a facade. In reality, Michael's home life was far from ideal. After the war, his father Virgil struggled with alcoholism and a short temper. Muriel did her best to keep the peace, but it often seemed she was far more concerned with what the neighbors thought than her own family. Neither showed their sons much affection. As a result, Michael endured a very cold and emotionally distant childhood. Nevertheless, Michael resolved not to let his parents down. Driven by their high expectations, he hit the ground running in his teen years. An exceptional student both inside the classroom and beyond, Michael earned top marks, ran track, and served on the student council. Remarkably, he still found time to study music, shining in both piano and clarinet. He even turned his music skills into a scholarship. In 1972, he began his studies at Millikan University. But Michael's time in the sun would not last. About to turn 18 and ready to take on the world, Michael began his freshman year strong. Popular and involved throughout campus, he quickly found a loyal social circle. But after he suffered a breakup in the latter part of the year, Michael's friends noticed a significant change in his behavior. Though the details are scarce, Michael's demeanor radically stiffened. He began to vocalize an extreme interest in the armed forces, as well as a fascination with weaponry. He even painted his car camouflage green and changed his entire wardrobe to military apparel. But what really raised eyebrows was Michael's morbid hobby of collecting news stories from car crashes. Absorbed by the violent imagery, Michael spent hours scouring local papers of gruesome accidents. Like precious heirlooms, Michael catalogued these grisly newspaper clippings in a series of scrapbooks. He filled page after page with horrific tragedies, his collection growing by the day. Before long, he had his own private library of carnage. Michael's disturbing pastime did no favors for his social status, and he made no attempts to repair his relationships. With each passing day, he only withdrew further into himself, resolving that he didn't need the connections he'd once forged. Before long, he was an outcast. 
Rather than return to Milliken for his third year, 19-year-old Michael promptly dropped out of university in the summer of 1974. Following in his father's footsteps, he joined the military and spent the next two years mastering an assortment of firearms in the Marines. Though he didn't face any live combat, Michael was thrilled to wield weapons of war. He received training as a sharpshooter, but like the restlessness he'd exhibited at college, he once again turned on his objectives. Michael decided against a career in the military. In 1976, after an honorable discharge, 21-year-old Michael enrolled in his hometown's community college before matriculating at Quincy College the following year. There, he surprised his parents with a sudden interest in medicine. Muriel Swango had always wanted great things for her son, and when he told her he was going to be a doctor, she was overjoyed. It afforded her prime bragging rights. Her child would be spending his life saving others. Little did she know, Michael's motivations were far more sinister. Michael had no interest in helping others. On the contrary, he wanted to see them die. No longer could he satisfy his enthrallment with death using scrapbooks alone, and his service in the military hadn't brought him any battleground memories to satiate his appetite. He needed to see death firsthand. But while he was studying at Quincy, he confronted the unpleasant reality that medical school was still years away. Impatient, Michael pursued a faster solution. On top of his double major in chemistry and biology, he became a certified emergency medical technician. It was the perfect way for him to experience human suffering up close. As the first responders for many emergencies, EMTs are a crucial part of the medical field, and those starting out have a lot to learn. To initially become a certified emergency medical technician, one needs to complete a state-approved EMT and basic life support course, and this usually takes about three to eight weeks of expedited programs. There's no major medical experience necessary, and this schooling teaches them the essential skills involved in dealing with life-threatening situations. For instance, they learn how to stabilize patients and how to provide ventilation with an AMBU bag. They're also taught CPR, how to administer epinephrine and other medications, and even how to deliver newborns. After completing all their coursework, they need to pass the National Registry of Emergency Medical Technicians EMT exam. This test is computer-based as well as hands-on and includes a written section that covers general EMT knowledge and a psychomotor portion that measures someone's physical capability in emergency care situations. The psychomotor segment also tests how someone assesses and interacts with patients. Once someone has their basic EMT license, they can continue with their education and become an intermediate or more advanced EMT. The next goal would be training as a paramedic, a job that represents the highest level of emergency response, and this takes about three years of schooling. Working as an EMT while also pursuing a degree would definitely be difficult, Alistair, and likely could have pushed Michael to the edge. But not only did Michael stomach the challenging work with ease, he thrived off it. Long days of classes were immediately followed by night shifts in the ambulance. The hours were daunting. And while many would say he was burning the candle at both ends, Michael shined under the pressure. His affinity for the work may have stemmed from the fact that his morbid curiosities were now fulfilled. His interest in car crashes and violent accidents was less unnerving when it was his job to save the victims, and may have even grown stronger. Concealing his true motivations, Michael misled his colleagues into believing his enthusiasm stemmed from a desire to help those who were truly in need. All the while, he relished in their brutalized flesh and anguish. For what was most likely his senior thesis, 24-year-old Michael combined his love of science and tragedy. His subject was Georgi Markov, 
a Bulgarian writer who had been assassinated in 1978 under mysterious circumstances. Though Markov's killer was never found, the prevailing theory was that Markov had been poisoned with a small injection of ricin. Though the dose was minimal, the toxin wreaked havoc on Markov's body, killing him within a few days. Ricin is a highly toxic substance derived from castor beans and can harm the body in a number of ways. It can be administered in the form of a powder, an aerosol, a pellet, and can be dissolved in liquid. Once ricin is digested or absorbed, it invades the body's cells and prohibits cellular protein production. This causes cells to die and eventually can lead to massive organ failure and death. Symptoms from ricin poisoning depend on the amount of exposure and route of entry, but lethal quantities will cause death in 36 to 72 hours if there's no medical intervention. When assessing a fixed amount of this substance, injection is the surest killing scheme because it's directly delivered to the bloodstream. Inhaling ricin is the second deadliest route, and initial symptoms can include difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, chest pain or tightness, and coughing. These respiratory issues will eventually progress and lead to things like pulmonary edema, or fluid in the lungs, respiratory failure, and death. Although still wildly unsafe, ingesting ricin is the least devastating scenario because it's not as well absorbed by the intestinal tract in comparison to the lung or bloodstream. Swallowing ricin will lead to horrible stomach pains, nausea, abdominal cramping, vomiting, and diarrhea. This can then lead to severe dehydration, a plummet in blood pressure, and death from organ failure. It doesn't take much ricin to kill, and it's a perfect example of how just a small dosage of the right poison could have awful consequences. And for a doom enthusiast like Michael, his research became a stepping stone into a world of fatal poisons. Before long, his interest in lethal chemistry consumed him. He spent long hours experimenting with personal formulas and recipes. But he refused to limit his research to the theoretical. He was a man interested in applied learning. So, Michael's modus operandi was born just in time for medical school. Coming up, Michael takes advantage of the very people he's sworn to protect. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own, or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1979, 24-year-old pre-med student Michael Swango brimmed with promise. Set to graduate near the top of his class at Quincy College and already certified as an EMT, he appeared destined for a long career in medicine. But unlike his classmates, Michael had no desire to do good. His medical pursuits were merely a means to satiate his obsession with morbidity and deadly poisons. Once he was a doctor, he would have unlimited access to unsuspecting patients and freedom to experiment to his heart's content. With his stunning resume, Michael was accepted into medical school at Southern Illinois University. 
Though his workload was higher than ever, he kept his job as a first responder, often commuting over 100 miles for work. Training himself to survive on minimal sleep, Michael pushed his body to its limits. He was far too enamored with the carnage of ambulance work to quit. Always itching to return to the action, Michael rarely showed a similar enthusiasm for schoolwork, and his classmates began to notice. By all accounts, Michael was shockingly indifferent when it came to school. While his fellow students often bonded over their reasons for pursuing medicine, Michael never provided an answer. His demeanor towards patients at SIU's hospital was cold and brief. Even during mandatory reports, he never seemed to spend more than a few minutes at their side. While he maintained his grades, his practical effort in the hospital was alarmingly poor. His behavior came across as uncommitted and lazy, and Michael quickly ostracized himself from his other classmates. Michael was particularly apathetic when it came to patient histories and physicals. Histories and physicals, which are often referred to as H&Ps, are routine evaluations that provide an opportunity for hands-on experience in bedside manner and note-taking. During H&P consultations, medical care providers visit with patients and take thorough medical histories to assess their health conditions. They also conduct physical examinations to identify anatomical abnormalities and establish a diagnosis that can later be confirmed through laboratory and imaging tests. In my experience, a careful and holistic scrutiny of someone's medical history and complaints will almost always reveal their specific illness. By just careful listening, you can usually establish what's wrong with your patient before you even examine them. It's sad to know that Michael was so glib with this important piece of his fieldwork. It's really a crucial part of medicine, and this carelessness in integrating someone's health background with their current problem can lead to diagnostic errors, which then results in erroneous treatment plans, unhappy patients, and potentially much worse. Michael's handling of these histories and physicals would have been considered malpractice if any mistakes or omissions he made led to harmful health outcomes for his patients. Michael's disregard for standards was a major red flag. While his peers often spent over an hour on a single H&P write-up, Michael would turn in fully completed reports in just a few minutes. His seemingly impossible pace led many to suspect he was falsifying his answers. Nonetheless, his classmates withheld formal complaints, electing instead to criticize his behavior from afar. But this was just the beginning of Michael's suspicious conduct. During his third year at Southern Illinois University, Michael became enthralled with the hospital's sickest patients. Like a vulture circling its next meal, whenever death was imminent, Michael was nearby. Classmates began to notice that patient health would frequently plummet after Michael's checkups. Several of them did not survive. As a result, Michael's resident physician gave him a rather bleak nickname, Double O Swango. For, like James Bond, Michael was licensed to kill. Though the moniker was meant as good-natured ribbing, the title may have been more accurate than anyone imagined. While we don't know for sure, the uncommonly high mortality rate of these patients, along with the similarities in cases he would later confess to, lead many to suspect that these were, in fact, Dr. Swango's first killings. There's no telling exactly how many people died by his hand while he was in med school. But thanks to his humorous nickname and the numerous jokes, Michael's proximity to death was never considered anything more than unfortunate coincidence. By his final year of med school, Michael was almost universally disliked. Though chastised for his half-hearted efforts, he wasn't moved to change his methods. He routinely skipped mandatory exams and continued to neglect his H&Ps. But the final straw came 
when Michael's supervising physicians discovered that he had likely been forging patient reports throughout his medical schooling. When he was finally caught, a mere month from graduation, the faculty put his expulsion to a vote. Requiring a unanimous decision, the motion failed by a single vote. Despite his brazen shortcomings, Michael was reinstated. Michael felt invincible, especially since he was given a second chance. Soon, his cavalier attitude extended to his ambulance work. The closer he got to graduation, the more careless he became. On one occasion, he didn't even try to hide his true intent. After responding to a call about a heart attack, Michael was instructed to transport the patient to the hospital as per protocol. But he decided to have some fun. Instead of putting the patient on a gurney, Michael ordered the man who was suffering from a heart attack to walk to his own car and have his family escort him to the emergency room. Heart attacks are very time-sensitive emergencies and life-threatening if not properly treated. When someone's having a heart attack, their coronary artery is blocked, and this means there's not enough blood getting to their heart's muscles. This lack of blood flow also means an oxygen and nutrient deficiency, which quickly damages the ventricles. In an attempt to regulate this disruption in blood circulation, the heart starts to race, which can lead to dangerous arrhythmias and heart failure. If someone were to physically exert themselves during this period of vulnerability, they would be hastening their odds of death by putting even more strain on their already compromised heart. Increasing the heart rate in this situation leads to an increased demand for oxygen, and if unmet, heart tissue becomes compromised and can quickly die, resulting in a heart attack or myocardial infarction. Some signs and symptoms of a myocardial infarction include chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, and high blood pressure. Emergency responders need to do what they can to calm a patient with a suspected heart attack, supply them with oxygen, and immediately get them to the hospital for monitoring and treatment. It's also important to give aspirin to someone having a heart attack because it helps prevent clots in the heart's arteries, which could potentially avert a myocardial infarction. There's never a case when making a patient walk while having a heart attack makes any sense, unless you want this person dead. Given Michael's years of experience as both an EMT and a medical student, there's no logical excuse here. Michael's employers agreed, and when he was unable to explain himself, they fired him. Once again, incompetence was the verdict. But in hindsight, it is much more likely that Michael wanted to watch the man die in front of his own family. Fortunately, this man survived. No thanks to Michael Swango. As usual, this latest blow to his reputation hardly upset his spirits. Michael had bigger things to focus on, like continuing his career. Despite his troubles in med school, 28-year-old Michael completed his degree. Not only was he officially a doctor, but on paper, he seemed like a perfectly adequate candidate for a residency program. Not long after graduation, Michael was offered an internship and residency at the Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983. The institution had a reputation for excellence, and it was clear that no one had looked deeper into Michael's background. If they had, they would have discovered a bevy of faculty and former classmates eager to condemn his qualifications. Instead, he was accepted on his resume and a subsequent personal interview. Just like that, Michael Swango had infiltrated one of the most exceptional medical institutions in America. though it didn't take long for them to realize his ineptitude. At the height of his medical training, Michael should have been on his best behavior. But the higher he ascended, the less he cared to hide his obvious faults. 
Within a few months, one of Michael's supervising physicians deemed him incompetent to practice medicine and expressed intentions to fail him in his internship. However, when the head of his department expressed his concerns about Michael's future, the charming, blonde, all-American said just enough to impress. Despite his glaring shortcomings, Michael was given another chance. The failure of his supervisors to expel him was a lethal mistake. Until this point, Michael was regarded as a poor but otherwise harmless intern. But everything changed on February 6, 1984. Around 8 a.m., part-time nurse Anne Ritchie was bathing an elderly patient named Ruth Barrick. Recovering well from a cerebral hematoma she'd suffered a few weeks prior, Ruth felt in particularly good spirits this morning. She engaged in a cheerful conversation with Anne, who was glad to see her patient upbeat. During her checkup, Anne spotted a minor irregularity with Ruth's intravenous tube. It wasn't serious, but the nurse called a doctor just to be safe. A few moments later, Michael Swango arrived. Anne left to continue her duties elsewhere, but she soon grew concerned when she didn't see Swango emerge from Ruth's room. She'd expected a quick fix. Perplexed, Anne returned to Ruth's room to offer any assistance he might need. Curiously, Michael had closed the curtains around Ruth's bed. When Anne looked behind them, she saw something odd. Michael had attached a syringe directly into Ruth's central IV line and appeared to have another at the ready. He insisted that he didn't need help and dismissed Anne from the room. At the time, even first-year interns outranked nurses, and Anne knew better than to question a doctor's judgment. Still, she felt a sense of relief when he finally exited a few minutes later. But when she checked on Ruth moments later, Anne was chilled to her very core. Ruth looked like a ghost. After a faint shudder, the elderly woman stopped breathing entirely. Michael had left mere seconds ago. There was no way he would have abandoned her in this state. Anne was horrified. With no time to lose, she called in a code blue and began emergency CPR. But as she began mouth to mouth, she felt a pair of cold eyes watching her from the back of the room. Standing there, making no effort to help, was Dr. Michael Swango. His emotionless stare pierced Anne like a dagger. She couldn't believe it. As she fought to keep her patient alive, Michael, did nothing. A legion of doctors arrived soon after, but it was too late. Ruth was gone. And though she didn't know exactly how, Anne was certain that Michael Swango was responsible. Up next, a mysterious string of deaths all lead back to Michael. Now, back to the story. In early 1984, 29-year-old Dr. Michael Swango was suspected of contributing to several patient deaths during his internship at the Ohio State University Medical Center. And though she had no substantial proof, nurse Anne Ritchie believed she had caught him in the act. It's unclear exactly what Michael injected into his victim, Ruth Barrick, but it's safe to say he got the results he wanted. Her cause of death was officially listed as cardiopulmonary arrest due to a cerebrovascular accident or stroke. An unfortunate but hardly rare occurrence, no one besides Anne suspected any foul play. Still, Anne couldn't shake it off. And just a few hours later, she experienced horrifying deja vu. Anne responded to an emergency call only to find Michael had already arrived. Like Ruth, 
this patient seemed to be in respiratory failure. Rather than let her administer help, Michael ordered Anne to go get a heart monitor. Fortunately, they weren't alone this time. Head nurse Amy Moore protested when Michael requested the device. Respiratory failure is a critical situation and requires immediate and careful attention. Without breathing, we die in a matter of minutes from brain hypoxemia, which is when the brain isn't receiving enough oxygen. If a patient clearly isn't breathing, the first thing to do is administer oxygen, and one option is to use an AMBU bag, an external mask available to emergency responders. In conjunction with giving the patient oxygen, it's important to implement chest compressions. Applying these repetitive pump and release maneuvers over the mid-chest area can manually stimulate blood circulating through the heart and brain, which may buy the patient more time. It's also sometimes necessary in these code blue situations to insert an airway or endotracheal tube into the nose or mouth, or intervene surgically if the airway is blocked by a foreign body, or even administer Narcan if the respiratory arrest is a result of an opioid overdose. In this patient's case, Dr. Swango should have immediately tried oxygen therapy before thinking about a heart monitor. The goal is to stabilize the patient, and first checking for a heart monitor makes this dangerous and impossible if they're not breathing. Requesting a heart monitor would only make sense here if respiratory assistance had already failed because the heart and lungs are functioning codependently. Even first-year doctors should be able to recognize the urgent consequences of acute respiratory failure, and Michael had no excuse for delaying. A seasoned hospital veteran, Amy knew how critical time was in such an emergency. Getting a heart monitor was the last of her concerns. Amy stood her ground and insisted Michael check the patient's lungs. When he refused, Anne felt her legs buckle. It was an all too familiar situation and she feared she was about to see a second patient die. But Amy Moore was not about to let that happen. Ignoring Michael's orders, she performed the necessary procedures to save the patient's life. Though his murder attempt was thwarted, Michael wasn't deterred. The very next day, he tried to kill another elderly patient named Rena Cooper. Thankfully, she too survived. Though this victim was unable to see Michael's face before he poisoned her with an unidentified toxin, the elderly Mrs. Cooper did manage to catch a glimpse of his blonde hair. And so did her roommate. On top of that, another nurse witnessed Michael rush from the room moments before Mrs. Cooper went into respiratory failure. Over the next few days, the nurses shared stories and sightings of Michael's whereabouts. There had been a suspiciously high number of emergencies since his arrival, and suddenly, everything began to add up. Though the evidence was circumstantial, it was far too coincidental to ignore. Unfortunately, the nurse's fears were not shared by Michael's fellow doctors. After raising their concerns, the nurses were advised to stand down. The hospital attorneys wanted to avoid police involvement at all costs and knew how damaging a murder allegation could be to their reputation. As a compromise, the hospital's management agreed to conduct an internal investigation to determine any malevolent activity. This may just have been an attempt to quiet the nurses. Nevertheless, they questioned Michael and he denied any wrongdoing. His fellow physicians gave him the benefit of the doubt and chose to believe the word of one doctor over several worried nurses. After a rather apathetic inquiry, Michael was exonerated of any criminal behavior. Michael felt absolutely untouchable. No matter what he did, he couldn't be caught. About a week later, he took his reign of terror to new heights. Beyond death, Michael craved the look of grieving faces. 
it seems nothing brought him more pleasure than breaking grim news to his victim's family. And on February 20th, 1984, he got a golden opportunity. 22-year-old Anna May was recovering from intestinal surgery as her mother Mary sat by her bedside. Seizing the chance to inflict maximum suffering, Michael claimed he needed to give an injection and ordered Mary to leave the room. Without a witness, it's impossible to say exactly what Michael did. Regardless, Anna May did not survive his visit. According to Anna May's mother, Mary, Michael escorted her into a conference room later that day to share the news. Michael leaned back in his chair, propped his feet up on the table, and casually told her her child was dead. By Mary's account, the doctor seemed to be in great spirits. The death of her daughter had apparently made him so happy. Though Mary eventually complained about his heartless behavior, Dr. Swango once again avoided any reprimand. Remarkably, Michael continued killing right under the hospital's nose. Though he was never caught in the act, his other bad behavior eventually turned his luck. Due to his poor evaluations and failure to show any improvement in his practices, his residency offer was terminated after his internship year. It's unclear whether the medical center presumed Michael might be up to something grim and wanted to free themselves of the liability. Nevertheless, the hospital's investigation brought no formal stains to Michael's record. So when he relocated back home to Quincy, Illinois in July of 1984, he was hardly devastated. After all, Michael still had the resume, schooling, and experience that guaranteed him a front row seat to death and violence. Within a few weeks, Michael interviewed for a paramedic job with an ambulance service in Adams County. It's unclear whether Michael lied or simply hid the fact that he had been terminated from a previous ambulance position for endangering a patient. Nevertheless, he landed the job. Surprisingly, Michael didn't exactly hide his dark proclivities once he was hired. Michael was more careless than ever about what he divulged to colleagues. His obsession with death was quickly made known, and he would often express his desire to see a bloodied body. Eager for mayhem, Michael often paced the hallways, wishing for a gruesome accident to whisk him into action. He welcomed violent news reports on the television with a smile, and on more than one occasion, Michael told a co-worker that he was envious of mass murderers. At first, his co-workers dismissed his disturbing behavior as an odd attempt at humor. But as time wore on, his fellow paramedics began to question if he really meant the horrible things he said. In the fall of 1984, they got their answer. On September 14th, 1984, Michael was feeling bored. He was tired of waiting for the next random, gruesome accident. So he hatched a plan that would turn his grim hopes into reality. That morning, he arrived at work with a box of donuts. Michael was not known for his generosity, but his offer was graciously accepted. Four of his colleagues took pastries, blissfully unaware that Michael did not join the coffee break. Within the hour, all four of his victims fell ill with intense vomiting and dizziness. While food poisoning was suspected, everyone assumed it was the fault of the store that baked them. The donuts being tainted on purpose was never considered. It's unclear what the pastries were poisoned with, but fortunately for the victims, Michael did not want them dead. At least, not yet. On the contrary, Michael wanted to study them like a twisted scientific inquiry. 
While his colleagues recovered, he frequently called for updates on their conditions. Probing for specifics, he wanted to know every painful detail of their ordeal. After they recovered, Michael continued his experiments. And this time, we know he used arsenic. Twice over the two weeks that followed, Michael offered arsenic-laced beverages to unsuspecting colleagues. Like lab mice, his subjects responded in a variety of ways, and Michael took note of their reactions for his personal satisfaction. When ingested, arsenic can cause myriad gastrointestinal issues. Even small doses under 5 milligrams can cause things like nausea, bloody diarrhea, vomiting, severe abdominal pain, and swelling in the stomach lining. Arsenic is also really dangerous when it's inhaled. Arsene gas is actually the most toxic form of arsenic, and exposure can lead to respiratory issues like difficulty breathing, pain during inhalation, lung edema, and violent coughing. Although the types of exposure vary, all arsenic poisoning has the potential to wreak havoc on the body's cellular functioning and cause death. While acute contamination can lead to multi-system organ failure, long-term minor exposure can lead to cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and damage to the nervous system. By feeding small amounts of arsenic to his colleagues, Michael probably would have noticed them having some of the previously mentioned stomach problems within minutes or hours after ingestion. And in fact, these symptoms may have even lasted for days after their initial onset. It's highly likely that they were coping with extreme discomfort because of Michael's experimentation. Michael Swango had created his own playground of suffering. By this point, his fellow paramedics had grown suspicious of his generosity. There was an undeniable pattern of illness, and a final incident several days later confirmed their paranoia. After brewing a pitcher of unsweetened tea, two of Michael's colleagues were called away. When they returned, their beverage had been drastically sweetened. No one took responsibility. Hesitant, they poured their beverages down the drain, not wanting to risk another mysterious illness. A few hours later, they realized just how wise their decision had been when they discovered an empty bottle of store-bought ant poison among Michael's possessions. The primary ingredient was arsenic, concentrated in a solution of sucrose. Their stomachs sank as the horrified paramedics suddenly understood how their tea had been sweetened. To test their theory, they set a trap, another batch of unguarded tea. Baited, Michael couldn't resist. He poisoned this new pitcher, and after his colleagues had it tested, it came back positive. Their fears were confirmed. Naturally, Michael's co-workers called authorities. The following day, Michael Swango was arrested. There was still no proof of his crimes, but after the police investigated his home, doubt was quickly erased. What they found was nothing short of an evil professor's secret lab. Stocked with science equipment, tools, and poisons, Michael's apartment looked like a homemade doomsday facility. Police also found a mini arsenal of weapons, occult paraphernalia, and a shocking collection of his disaster scrapbooks. Altogether, it painted the image of a very twisted and very dangerous man. When the police dug into Michael's past, they discovered a long history of prior suspicions. While initially hesitant, the Ohio State Hospital eventually worked with the authorities to establish a pattern of suspected criminal conduct. Fearing additional backlash, Michael's former employers agreed to cooperate with the investigators. With great effort, the police collected enough information to establish a profile of Michael as a cold-blooded killer. When the trial finally began in April 1985, each of the paramedics who Michael poisoned testified against him. 
But perhaps the most crucial moment came when Michael himself took the stand. To explain the ant poison his co-workers had discovered in their tea, Michael claimed he'd had a terrible ant infestation at his home and had purchased chemicals to deter the pests. He even had an exterminator inspect his home to corroborate the story. There were ants present. Upon cross-examination, the exterminator admitted that the particular type of ants in Michael's home were not native to that part of the country. It was as though they had been imported from afar and placed there on purpose. If that wasn't enough, the prosecution did everything in their power to convince the court that Michael was untrustworthy and deranged. Michael had already waived his right to the jury, so his fate rested solely with the judge's verdict. In the end, he was charged with seven counts of aggravated battery for poisoning his colleagues. The judge concluded that Michael was an unpredictable menace to society, sentencing him to a maximum of five years in prison. But he wouldn't serve his entire sentence, and this wouldn't be the end of his story. Next time on Medical Murders, Dr. Michael Swango uses a series of forgeries and identity changes to slither his way back into the medical world. After his trail becomes too hot, he flees the country to continue killing overseas. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Michael Swango, among the many sources we used, we found Blind Eye, the terrifying story of a doctor who got away with murder by James B. Stewart, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.